millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, Third Tell shows twice on Sunday. So glad you're joining us. This is where we recap the week that was on Heard Tell by going back over some of the interviews that we had. And we had some really amazing guests this week on some really relevant and timely topics. We hope you'll stay for all of them. A quick reminder, though, make sure you're subscribing, liking, and commenting to this show on YouTube or on any of the podcasting platforms that you may be listening to. That'll make sure you get all the Herdtail products we do. Uh, Herdtail every weekday morning, you'll get that every weekday afternoon. You'll get the good talks break out of the interview segments. And of course, twice on Sunday over the weekend. We also got long form podcasts at Deep Dive into various issues. You can find all those on the YouTube page and or on all the podcasting platforms. So glad you're with us. We kicked off this week with our friend Gabrielle Salazar Singh. Uh, There's trouble down in Mexico. Uh, AMLO, the president of Mexico, is showing some dictatorial tendencies. There's some unrest. There's some complaining. There's some problems with the free press. There's some problems with the institutional parts of Mexico, which has long fought things like corruption, some takeover of the election system, things like this. Gabriel Salazar Singh joins us to break it down. What's going on to our neighbor to the south on Hertel right now? back to Hertel, talking to our friend Gabriel Salazar Singh, talking a little bit about Mexico, Mexico politics, some things going on, some very troubling developments in the current uh, reign of President AMLO. Uh, we, we talked about some of those, you know, non-official institutions in America. We often talk about the press, the free press being an institution. But in Mexico, you already touched on it a little bit. There's been some really disturbing stuff in Mexico uh, as you listed in your piece, there's been at least six journalists, prominent German journalists murdered uh, just in this year alone. Uh, we had the incident with Obrador. I'm, I still think I'm saying that wrong. But uh, AMLO uh, publicly, what we would probably call doxing a prominent journalist, revealing their salary, revealing personal details about them, which everybody took as a pretty direct threat for good reason. What is this situation with the free press in Mexico and how does that kind of build into the constant corruption and the constant problems with the government that you don't have an accountable press that can get after the government? So journalism, the press and every aspect related to it, I think that everyone who lives in a democracy must admire. Uh, One can criticize it. One can be against what the, uh, what the journalist has said, but to have the president vehemently attack a journalist by revealing his salary in a country which we know has high criminality rates, high gang violence, in which he knows as president that six journalists have been killed, 
and to reveal his salary on live television, which was a high salary, tells you a lot about his motives. These aren't good motives. He's setting in, him up for, for violence, for theft, to being kidnapped. One never knows with, with the violence that goes up there. And sure, he's not going ahead and using policemen to kill Mr. Loret de Mola, the, the journalist, but he's certainly using his power to say, oh, maybe go ahead, go ahead. And he said, I think I mentioned in the article where he said, if you, if you attack me, you know what happens. What can you, what can you think about a president who, do, who does that, right? You mentioned in here, uh, part of this, it's almost become a, a, a stick. I don't know how you would say that in, in Spanish, but it, it's part of his public rhetoric now to do those flourishes, the strongman routine. We've seen this with our own people. President Trump does this a lot. It's the it's the wink, wink kind of threatening stuff. It's the strongman stuff that you're alluding to. Um, you you mentioned in the piece that he kind of had a, a a moment kind of similar. You compared it to Richard Nixon's "I'm not a crook" moment, but where he came, he stood up and used a very specific term that folks in Mexico knew exactly what he was meaning, didn't he? Yeah. So he uses the term. Or he said, I'm not a cacique, the, a chieftain in many Native American tribes, especially there in Mexico. I'm not a, a dictator. And he said that as a candidate. So I, I, I compare it to Richard Nixon's I'm not a crook moment, because if you got to say that as a candidate, it tells you a lot about his rhetoric, his persona, uh, how he's acted, his, his uh, proposals. Uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, let me give you another Latin American example for just a second. When he ran for president, I recall seeing an interview with Jorge Ramos, uh, a brilliant journalist who said, who asked him about his dictatorial aspirations. And Hugo Chavez used to say, no, we're going to work closely with the private sector. I believe in the private sector. I am not a dictator. Uh, dictatorship is what has happened before even though Venezuela was a, a democracy when, when Hugo Chavez was elected president. And so I go back to what I was saying. If a, if a president has to say that, or a candidate rather, has to say that in the midst of a presidential campaign, it tells you that the people are scared, that he isn't trustworthy, and that his proposals, his rhetoric, his persona has been uh, like that of a dictator especially in a, in a region that has been highly traumatized by the dictatorships that have happened over the years. Yeah. Is that what we're looking here? If, if you don't get a, some kind of an electoral defeat for him, at least for his party, if not for him directly, uh, you already mentioned Hugo Chavez. Uh, we, we know that his replacement was as bad, if not worse. There's a long history in Latin America. I mean, you can go all the way back to, you know, the Noriegas, pick whoever you want to. There's a long history of populist strongmen that turned into dictatorships. Is that really, you know, what's the likelihood of that happening in Mexico right now with AMLO? Is that what we're really looking? Are we really one election away from him being a perpetual strongman that is going to be electorally untouchable? So I believe the permanence of power of a single person, at least, is one of the characteristics of a dictatorship, but not the only one. 
he could perfectly leave power in the next elections because well presidential election is not is not viable under Mexican law there there is no way for immediate reelection at least i don't really know if if there's way for reelection later on but uh, one has the impediment of presidential reelection being an impediment for dictators around the world it has never been an impediment take a look at the at the last presidential polls i've said before that i believe that making uh, electoral calculations from now is highly and incredibly impossible context may change we saw this with the coronavirus pandemic around the world where elections suddenly gave us unexpected results but in the last elections amlo got a 53% of people who voted for him the polls show that that support has grown to 60% and that the second place goes to one of the traditional parties who goes just above 10% of the of the people who support them for the next presidential election so once again um, the permanence of power of a single person is not necessary for a dictatorship to be made but the modern dictator gets to power through the system and then rigs it to his favor what if morena wins again and they go with all of the reforms that they want having increased their majority in congress having penetrated the judicial power maybe even the electoral institute in mexico which apart from amlo wanting to politicize it he wants to federalize it which means taking away the power that the states that the Mex mexican states have and giving it to the federal government andrew let me ask you this question if you were uh, the leader of a country in a hypothetical scenario and you wanted to remain in power what would be the first reform that you would do yeah you consolidate power and you get a hold of the electoral process exactly mm -hmm. exactly so this is why we have to eye this reforms that amlo wants to make in mexico with a close eye because yeah. latin america as we've mentioned it many many times in this interview uh, isn't foreign to the concept of a dictatorship now let me see you go off like a bomb back to her tell uh we had our friend david mcgarry on he's another one of our great young voices contributors and he talked about something that's going on that i hadn't seen in the news at all but he was covering it and he should have uh the government ice and department of homeland security specifically has been looking into wire transfer companies you know western union things like this the problem is by their own designs they are sending all this data information that they're collecting through a private third-party company. Now, that don't sound right even on the face of it. It gets into privacy concerns, gets into Fourth Amendment concerns. What is going on with this? Why is the government using a third-party company to store all this data? And it's a massive amount of data. It's six, seven million users at a shot on just six subpoenas. We're going to break it down with David McGarry. He talks about, once again, the government, privacy concerns, warrants, how they're looking into things, and about keeping the government accountable. We'll talk about that on Hertel right now yeah david mcgarry joining us from young voices 
All right. Uh, you already mentioned it, so let's talk about it. Uh, Ron Wyden, a uh, senator from Oregon, he's the one that got involved with this. How did he get involved with it, and what was he actually doing that led up to him looking into this? and getting? I, was it a constituency thing? Was it an investigation thing? How did that happen? So Wyden has actually been very good on these issues of, uh, of privacy um, of late. He called out uh, op- Operation Whistlepig, which was a uh, Border Patrol agent opening an incredibly extensive investigation into a journalist on very flimsy uh, evidence. He called out CIA data gathering earlier this year, and now he's uh, targeting HSI. I mean, the man just cares about an issue that all 99 of his uh, partners in the Senate should also care about. But let's face it, for whatever reason, um, political or otherwise, they don't seem to. But the man's made it a, uh, a priority and part of his uh, part of his political package in his resume. And I think he should be commended for that and support for that, even though there's plenty of his other policies and beliefs that I disagree with. Yeah, and Ron Wyden is a Democrat from Oregon. Oregon, of course, being more of a leftward leaning state, especially the Portland area. Um, is there more bipartisanship on this issue? Because we've been dealing with this since, especially since 9-11. We know about the Patriot stuff. We've been dealing in the last few years with things like FISA warrants and these sorts of things. We've talked on our program a lot about the Fourth Amendment. Uh, you talk about Senator Wyden. Is he alone out there or are there other representatives and senators that you're seeing that maybe get some bipartisan consensus on privacy issues? Because I'm noticing we talk a lot of good game when it comes to big tech and things like that. But then when it's something like this, those same people kind of get quiet. Is that a fair criticism or is other people noticing that as well? No, I think I think that is spot on right there. Um, And I think much of it comes down to the fact that our politics is partisan, not only in not only in the ways that that people that the people view themselves, but in the issues that they pick to prioritize. So, like you said, for the left, um, privacy issues and uh, surveillance of citizens has been a really, really big deal for a while. Um, But right now, because it's not a great blunt object to hit Republicans over the head with, it's not actually, um, or I should say the left isn't making uh, Biden administration abuses a priority to combat, with the exception of Wyden. Um, With that said, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that the Republicans aren't jumping on this a little bit more. Under, in the Trump administration, conservatives and Republicans and people of the right generally got the idea and started to understand that letting law enforcement agents with all of their biases and personal flaws, uh, letting law enforcement agents go after citizens outside the law probably wasn't the best idea, especially if they if there was no oversight to uh, keep keep them in line. Um, and of course, I'm referring to a lot of the FISA abuse that we saw in um, in relation to the uh, in, in relation to investigations of Trump campaign uh, campaign officials. So why why they can't carry that over and demand that Biden era uh, law enforcement agents follow the law as well? I don't know. I tend to think that it that they're sort of falling back on old style two thousands Tom Cotton esque support for law enforcement and military and surveillance in general, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Talking to David McGarry about this surveillance program. All right. Uh, When we're talking law enforcement on this particular case, the elephant in the room is DHS. We know what an absolute monster of a government organization this has grown into. And I don't mean that in necessarily a bad way. It's just it's a monster. It's huge. 
when they built this thing after 9-11, I don't know that folks really realized how much it was going to change things like law enforcement, like oversight. Where's DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, on this program? Because, like you said, this is a multi-state program. You're also dealing with Mexico because you have a lot of people that come in the country and use these wire transfer companies to send money back to Mexico. Uh, That touches on the immigration issue, which is, of course, in the DHS. What's their role here? Because they have direct oversight from Congress, but they're also so big. We've seen this in hearings time after time after time. It's proven to be an organization that's really hard to do effective oversight on. What's their role in this and where should we start focusing in on because they're so big to get into the heart of the matter on this particular issue? So I think you really hit it on the head, which is that at at a certain point, if or I should say in the absence of clear regulations and clear oversight structures, there will be misbehavior when you give any uh, agency or individual this much power over citizens. And actually, that's something that Wyden mentions in his letter, that these custom summons have been abused routinely in the past, that we know this, this has been the subject of inspector general reports, yet for one reason or another, probably because there's not enough institutional incentive to, to make the brass care about it, these reforms have not clearly been implemented throughout the agency. Uh, Welcome back to Twice on Sunday. We continue to recap the week that was. I love uh, the things we do on Herdtail where we get to get a global perspective on things. We get outside of the news media noise and the bubble that we can sometimes get in as Americans and check in on what's going on around the world. Uh, A great young voices contributor named Augustine Fazani joined us. Uh, We've been talking about the world food shortage that's going to come out of the Russian and Ukraine. One of the great agricultural places in the world is Argentina. They're not in a, really in a place to help with their agricultural outbursts because they just went through a process with their government where they started to cap their grain exports and put price controls on and things like this. He talked about what's going on in Argentina because there's some universal principles there. Government, agricultural, how export imports should work, how the functions of government should work, how a country could rise up and be ready on the world stage if they have their own house in order. These are great things to learn a little bit about Argentina learn how that wonderful country also has some problems politically, policy-wise, and otherwise. And you get to learn a little bit about how their problems start to sound a lot like ours in a lot of ways. And we can learn a little something from them. Augustine Frizzani on Hertel right now. Yeah, talking to our friend Augustine Frizzani. Uh, we talked about the politics. We talked about the policy. You just touched on it, so I really want you to put a human face on this. Talk about the people of Argentina for just a second. This is a this is a very large country, uh, beautiful country, some of the most uh, jarring landscapes in all the world, all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, to the center of South America. Um, you talked agriculture. Um, Argentina's cowboys are legendary worldwide. There's a lot of culture here. There's a lot of history here. But in America, we call it gridlock, Uh, the political dysfunction and the economic frustrations you've talked about for a long, long time. People are very disenfranchised with the political system. They call it the rift uh, in Argentina. Uh, You you can say the pretty fancy Spanish version of it, which is a lot better than the way I said it, but they call it the rift. But talk about the people of Argentina for just a second, how they're processing things. I've got to imagine when they see something like this, where they can maybe take a step on the world stage besides just the dysfunction, there's got to be a lot of frustration with all this, doesn't there? Yeah, obviously there is, there is a lot 
a lot of fr frustration, but I I think that um yeah I, I mean farmers are already frustrated by I mean increasing taxes uh all the time and the sector that is suffering obviously is uh, uh frustrated by this new intervention but other sectors as I said some even some sectors within the agricultural markets as mills are gonna kind of enjoy this new subsidy and they are gonna uh, have like they're gonna be able to get um, a benefit from this new intervention so um, there is a kind of kind of a division within the 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 agricultural sector in Argentina and but yeah in general in Argentina people are uh, there is an, there is an increase in the um, the sentiment in Argentina for um, like changing the system. You know, people in Argentina is, are just exhausted of um, uh, these these functions in government, and there is a like a kind of un, anti-government uh, sentiment growing. Um, but what? I believe in the what I what, what I think it's uh, the main problem is uh, our institutions and our ideas within our country. Um, people in Argentina are not just I mean we are not uh, less um, productive than other countries because we want to be less productive. Uh, we have a, we just have a problems in in our our rules and institutions. And these rules and institutions cause uh, that we cannot uh, like cooperate each other to 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 produce and to to grow and uh, to progress as a country. Um, I am. I mean, lots of people that from Argentina that emigrate to other countries end up being really successful. That's because they just they are the same people, but they change to another set of institutions and rules and they i mean they end up being more productive in other rules and, and institutions so we have to change our um like if you will uh, formal and informal rules uh this is a cultural change a long process obviously but if we can accomplish that we can i mean we can grow uh, tremendously because we have the resources we have the i i mean the people in argentina is really i mean innovative they are uh, we have good people we have good human resources uh, um, natural resources we just need um, a change in our uh, system in our rules and we can uh, take off i'm sure Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell twice on Sunday. When we're recapping the week that was, we got to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. It was explosive story all over the place. Mainstream media, news outlets, social media, of course, Twitter. That's all you could talk about on Twitter this past week was Elon Musk 
and the purchase of the platform. But what's going on, really going on here? If we turn down the noise a little bit, besides the content concerns everybody's talking about, and besides all the socio-political stuff that Elon Musk does and the cult of personality that surrounds him as one of the big avatars in our culture right now, what's the business side of this? So we turn to our friend RJ Lehman. Uh, he's been with the R Street Institute for a long time. He's the editor-in-chief, editor-in-chief for the International Center for Law and Economics. And he's going to talk about the business side of this deal, why it's not a done deal yet, even though everybody agreed to it. There's regulatory things that have been worked through. He'll also talk about what it means. What Once he takes over the platform, there's certain things a social media company has to do. What does it mean when it's publicly traded, privately traded? We'll talk about all those things with RJ Lehman right after this. Talk to me about the business side of this, because I think it's getting glossed over. And really, in the grand scheme of things, that side of it's more important. And all that content stuff folks talking about, none of that happens without the business side of it being in order. So let's start there. Just Mm -hmm. what we know now, where do you think the business side of this sits? So what we know is Twitter has been an underperforming stock for a few years Um, when you compare it to the other major platforms uh, particularly Facebook, which which also includes the Facebook subsidiaries like Instagram and uh, WhatsApp. Um, Twitter does not generate anywhere near the same revenue. It doesn't have the same kind of user base. It's got a different kind of uh, uh, profile in terms of who its users are and what they get out of the experience. Um, it, the, pri- I, the obvious primary difference is Twitter does not have the kind of demographic information about its users that Facebook does. Facebook knows quite a bit about who you are, what you like, what you might want to buy, um, which is valuable information for their for their advertisers. Uh, Twitter, much less so. You know, it, it does know some things. It knows who you follow, knows who you inter- engage with. Um, it doesn't necessarily really know who you are. There's a lot of anonymity on Twitter. Um, and uh, it has not been able in quite a while to convert its service into a really profitable business. So that's that's why there's a good business case for a takeover, for taking it another direction, that uh, its, its original concept um, was a good one and a popular one, but not necessarily a profitable one. Elon Musk um, has a long history of, of uh, controversy on the Twitter platform. Um, and so it was unclear when he first announced that he was taking a stake in the company what his goal was. He uh, took uh, a nine, he announced on April 1st, many people noted it was April Fool's Day, that he was buying 9% of the company, which is an important uh, uh, threshold because at 10%, there's a lot of reporting requirements that a company having that size stake. So he didn't go over that. Um, and he, uh, it was announced initially that he would be joining the board of directors. Uh, that uh, ultimately, a couple of days later, did not happen. Uh, the, the board announced that Elon was no longer interested in joining. Many people speculated that the reason he wasn't interested in joining is as a member of the board of directors, he would have fiduciary duties to look out for the best interests of the company. And so a lot of his behavior, talking, smack (laughs) about Twitter and what it's like and what it does would be stuff that he would be precluded theoretically from doing and that that might be why he didn't join the board. 
And so then uh, again, a couple of days later, he made a full offer to buy out all of Twitter, the whole, the whole lock, stock and barrel um, and take the company private. So it would no longer be a, a publicly traded company. Um, initially the board was resistant to doing that. It, uh, it announced just a couple of days ago, you know, depending on when people hear this, uh, that they, they had considered his offer and uh, would be accepting it. So what we know is that not a lot about what, what Elon wants to do with the business model of Twitter. He has suggested maybe relying less on advertising on, and more on a uh, uh, subscriber type uh, service where you would have incentives to pay for additional services, to pay to get yourself a verified account, um, and that it would be private. Uh, and that he would exercise less moderation than Twitter has exercised in the past. But how he, he'll make money with this is not clear at all, um, especially since like this is now going to be on his books. I mean, he and his, his investors, financers are, are going to own this whole thing. Um, you, you probably need a business plan because most people don't want to throw away $44 billion for uh, an asset that's not going to generate some revenue for you. Now, let's talk about that for just a second, because this is something else that's not getting talked about mm -hmm. at all. This is not a done deal, and it's nope. not even on step two or three of a 100-step process of being a done deal. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about um, a hostile takeover, which was what this is, even though Twitter's agreeing to it, by, by legal definition, it's still a hostile takeover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is highly regulated. There's a lot of rules to this. There's oversight sure. to this. He has to prove his financing. There has to be a third-party guarantor of this financing. We're a long ways from this deal being done, but everybody's acting like this thing is done. Talk about that process a little bit because, and we'll lead into it a minute ago, Elon Musk recently, 2018, he yeah. said on Twitter of all places, he was going to take Tesla private and that went so well, it bought him a $20 million <laughs> fine, Tesla a $20 million fine. He turned out he did not have, he still to this day says he was serious, so SEC disagrees. He had to step down as the chairman of Tesla for at least five years. And here's the kicker that brings us to today. The SEC had to approve his tweeting of all things on Twitter. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, when I see a movie one time, I want some proof that the sequel is going to be at least better Am I wrong for thinking that way? Because we're a long way to go on this puppy, but people are acting like it's done. It's it's uh, it's still uncertain. I would I would bet more likely than not at this point, but we'll see where he gets his financing. We know he is he has come forward with it's a forty four billion dollar deal. He has announced he has twenty five point five billion dollars in uh, lender financing. That still leaves open, you know, almost twenty billion dollars that. Uh, would come, he says, out of equity financing, which would mean basically Tesla stock or stock in one of his other uh, ventures, but most likely Tesla. He also has SpaceX and the Boring Company um, and a few other smaller ventures uh, that he could pledge that stock. All of which, though, if if he pledges, it means is he loses control in those primary in those primary companies that that he has been at the helm of for quite a while. Um, so Tesla shares immediately after the Twitter announcement started falling because it was, it was unclear what would happen with Tesla. Would they dilute their shareholders by doing more, uh, by issuing more stock and that that's how he would end up financing the Twitter buy. 
Um, still unclear. The regulatory uh, approvals that are, are pending, um, it would have to go through antitrust clearance. It's probably not an antitrust concern because Elon Musk and his companies are not currently in the social media business. Um, so uh, if you if uh, if Coca-Cola buys Pepsi or uh, McDonald's buys Burger King, that's what's called a horizontal merger. You're you're merging you're merging with a competitor in the same market. And you're expanding out. That almost always triggers serious antitrust concern. This would be more what you call a vertical merger. So in vertical mergers, there's less initial antitrust concern. There can be in some circumstances if you uh, are different parts of the production chain, say if, if General Motors bought out Uniroyal tires, um, there might be concern that General Motors is going to use that acquisition to uh, try to uh, prevent its competitors, Toyota, from buying Uniroyal tires at the cheap level that General Motors can get it. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though, uh, but it would be something that you would have regulators being concerned about. The only concern a regulator could raise here, and it's it's one that I wouldn't be shocked if it happens because the FTC has gotten very activist under the Biden administration, is what the theory of potential competition, that the problem here is Elon Musk might have started a social media company in the future to compete with Twitter. And by buying Twitter, he doesn't start his social media company in the future. And so he's preventing theoretical future competition from happening, um, which sounds ridiculous, but there are regulators who, who pursue those kinds of ridiculous theories. So if the FTC were to step in and, and you know, pose a, a, a theoretical complaint on potential competition, um, I would not be shocked. I think it would be ridiculous, but I would not be shocked. Yeah, I don't want them to do that because then I'd have to defend Elon Musk getting Twitter, <laughs> which I don't really want to do, but I would have to in that case because that's absolutely ridiculous talking to RJ Lehman. So uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, huge story all week long was Florida versus Disney. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida and the Florida legislature passing uh, legislation that removes the special district from the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Reedy Creek Improvement District is basically Disney World. Way back in the 60s, Walt Disney, the guy, not the company, that's the deal they made to give them that massive tract of land uh, outside of Orlando. Now, Disney is the largest employer in the state of Florida. You're talking about 80,000 people, billions and billions of dollars of revenue, also means a lot of infrastructure. So these improvement districts make deals with the government for them to do things, maintain their own roads and things like this. Well, now that that's been removed, what does it mean? Now there's been a lot of been a lot of talk in the commentary sphere about what this means, but we need to deal with the black and white of the law. What does the legislation say? What does the bond and things like this laws that dictate this stuff to? We turn to Sarah Rump, our friend from Mediaite. She's also a Florida resident, so she's talking about her backyard here. She actually went out and talked to a lot of the individual local officials that is going to have to implement this, that it's going to be directly affected by this. What does the law say? What does it not say? Can they do this? Is this going to hold up when it inevitably winds up in court? A lot of moving parts to this underneath all the rhetoric. We also deal with the fact that way too many people are really excited about this because they want the government to go after Disney. 
Is that a healthy thing? Is that a good thing for the way we govern people? Is it good to have retaliatory government, even against a company as big as Disney? We get into all that with our friend Sarah Rumpf right after this. Yeah, talking to Sarah Rump. This is part of this discussion that I don't think we talk about enough. Uh, you've done commentary for a long time. There's so much of the the pundit class on the right that was doing the, well, they messed around and found out that kind of rhetoric about right. this. But what you're saying and what you're writing, and I think you're right on most of it, and this is the way I feel about it is people need to get it through their head that as big as Disney is, as powerful as Disney is, as ubiquitous as Disney is, it's in probably every home in America in some form or fashion. This is an asymmetrical fight because they're still not the government. And even a state government like Florida, the largest company in the world, does not have the power, the authority, and the ability to do things that a government does. And that's the part of this conversation I think is getting left out. And that's why I want to talk about, you know, the rhetoric is one thing. What you think of Disney and what they're doing is one thing. What you think of Ron DeSantis and his politics is one thing. When something's in black and white in the law, and we now have black and white law here, and as you say, it's violating other black and white law that's going to be hashed out in court, this, this is not a fair fight. As big and powerful as Disney is, they're at the mercy of the government here. And I know that sounds weird to make Disney sound like the victim, and I don't really like no. what they're doing anyway, but that's the part people need to understand is like, well, wait a minute. You do not want retaliatory government. That's bad because nobody can stand up to that. I, I agree with you 100%. And just a couple points I'd want to make. Um, some of the biggest critics of this bill have been big critics of Disney. Scott Randolph, our tax collector here, um, is like, post, like, he's like, I'm not a fan of Disney. They've given millions of dollars to Republicans. They've supported a bunch of people I disagree with. Ana Escamani, who's my state rep here, um, she's, she, she criticizes Disney all the time and she's been doing it for years. She won't go to the park. She doesn't like some of their labor practices and other things. And she's been very vocal, but she also does not want to crush the Florida economy and thinks that Disney's free speech vi uh, rights are violated. The, the thing is, is that, you know, and I've seen some of the commentary from like Ben Shapiro and Kurt Schlichter and, you know, these guys that are cheering this on. And it's like, okay, if that's the position you're taking, then don't you dare ever, ever say you support free speech ever again, because that's what this is. And like, I almost feel like, you know, like when you're, you're talking to a toddler who's trying to hit another toddler and you say, use your words, um, like Disney used their words and DeSantis and the government used the hammer of governmental power to try to crush something. Like it's, it's, it's just completely disproportionate. I get the anger with Disney, like the, you know, the, the videos that um, Christopher Rufo published, like made people angry. Um, now I look at that and then I see the content that actually Disney actually point puts out where there might be a couple who's a guy and a guy that are in the background of some scene. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not, really worried about that ruining the youth of America or whatever. If Disney was actually trying to put like pedophilia and like perverted sex content in, you know, the next Frozen sequel, um, that wouldn't work. <laughs> like we have the internet. There's a million different websites that rate films for like content. And so like anything that is actually introducing sexual perversion and all the things that people on Twitter have been freaking out about, like, 
we would know that. And then nobody would take their kids to see the Disney movie that had, you know, I don't know, Olaf doing inappropriate things. Um, that, that's just not going to happen. But again, if you don't like Disney's messages, if you don't like Disney's content, criticize them. Boycott them. Go ahead. Like, their stance on China, I think, deserves quite a lot of discussion and debate. Cool. But you don't violate the Constitution and throw the Central Florida economy into chaos and violate half a dozen other statutes on the books because you're mad that the CEO sent some BS press release. And let me, let me again go back to this press release, what it actually said. They said they didn't like the bill and would do whatever we could to repeal it. I, I looked at that and I laughed. Like, it sounded like garbage corporate puffery to me. There was a lawsuit filed almost immediately as soon as the bill was signed. There are liberal groups and civil liberties groups and LGBT groups that had already fundraised and were ready for it. They have a legal fund already. The lawsuit is there. Whether Disney donates to it or not, it doesn't matter. They don't need Disney's money. And it's in the hands of the judges. And Mickey Mouse doesn't sit on the bench. So this press release saying they're going to do whatever they can to repeal it is like, it sounded to me like he was just patting the employees on the head, like, please stop freaking out. Please stop yelling at me. I swear we're doing something. But it wasn't really doing anything. Before the bill was passed, there were a number of companies that spoke out. There was like 150 companies that signed some letter objecting to it. There were other companies that were threatening to boycott Florida and people that were saying they were cancel conferences and different things that they'd scheduled around the state in the next coming years and months and years. Um, the government, DeSantis didn't lash out against any of those people who were threatening to boycott Florida before the bill was passed. They lashed out at Disney for one press release after the bill was passed because DeSantis is running for president and Disney is a bigger target for messaging than some small conference of anesthesiologists or whatever that was like canceling their plans. Um, no offense against anesthesiologists, I just picked that out of my head, but everybody at conferences here. Anyway, like this, it's all about messaging. He needs somebody to go on Tucker Carlson's show and say that he's fighting the fight against the culture war, he's fighting against wokeism, he's you know, sticking up for your kids, protecting them from the evil liberals who want to turn them into gay communists or whatever. Um, you know, I'm not quoting him here, obviously, but like, that's the messaging. Scary liberals that are trying to indoctrinate your kids and I'll protect you. Um, it's, it's all messaging for the, for the presidential campaign. Um, and, it's, and it's really, really wrong. And, it's gonna, and if this doesn't get shut down quickly by a court, it's going to hurt people in my hometown. It's going to put people out of work here. It's going to put people out of their homes. Um, we got too many people who still haven't recovered from the pandemic. An extra two to three thousand dollar tax bill will break some people, and that that breaks my heart. And I'm I'm sure that there's probably a dartboard with my face on it in the comms office at, at the governor's, you know, in the governor's offices, and that's fine. Um, you know, I. <laughs> I, I'm not going to shut up about this, and I've got more stories to write and more people that are talking to me, and it's just it's just so insane and so wrong what they've done. 
Yeah, Sarah Rump joining us. And the, one of the reasons I bring her on, she has this all sourced when you read through her stuff at Mediaite and the other places she writes about uh-huh. it. She's talking to the county level people. She's talking to the state level people. This is all sourced. This isn't her opinion. She's actually going out and doing all the legwork on this. Uh, real quick, to kind of put a bow on this and, and to bring it back to kind of where we started, though. What, what's the short-term end game here? We're, let's be adults here. We know this is an election year. That's probably the biggest piece of all this. Uh, the Florida session is now done, so nothing's going to really probably happen there. Are we just waiting for the legal stuff here and then waiting for the election and see how this shakes out? Is that kind of the, the near-term end game here? I Frankly, I see two paths forward. The legislature comes to their senses. They can blame the liberal media. They can say that this has been distorted and they don't want to cause anybody stress and they'll revisit it next year and they repeal the bill, come up with whatever dumb, dumb excuse they want that they repealed the bill during the May special session. If they don't do that, there's going to have to be a lawsuit. Um, And it's going to be one of those, like, you know, from Disney's perspective, spend the legal fees now or spend the legal fees later. They either pay to enforce to protect their rights in court, um, or they're going to have to pay for quite a bit to try to untangle this and renegotiate with Orange and Osceola County. I do not see a situation where Reedy Creek totally ceases to exist. Um, Disney wants to keep paying that higher taxes. They want to keep that level of infrastructure. Orange and Osceola County don't want to take it over, but they're just going to have to work out a couple different pieces of agreements and new county level districts and maybe new municipalities and other little things that'll have to be created in a year's time, which is again, insane. Um, like, like this, is, this is the equivalent of saying, okay, I'm gonna build a cross country highway, but you've got a year. I mean, you could technically do that. You could, we could say we're gonna build one big highway across the entire United States of America. And we could, we'd have to like draw in every possible contractor and get people trained up and go and like find every possible source of concrete, but it would, it would be insane and it wouldn't be done well. That's what they're, that's, that's kind of feels like the project they're trying to take on. But Disney's going to have to file a lawsuit fairly soon to, to protect their rights here. Um, and if, if it, if a court doesn't put that big pause button on it, they're going to have to start negotiating with the counties and, Taxes are going to go up around here. There's nowhere else to put it. The, the revenues are still down from the pandemic. Um, again, like all of our, our economy depends on tourism. With less people coming here and the parks closed for a while during the pandemic, the tourist development money is way down, all of it's way down. Um, they're already strapped. So if they're going to have to do this, they're going to have to raise taxes or cut services somewhere. And, you know, where, where do you cut? You, you stop you stop maintaining the roads. You cut homeless services. You, you know, it, it's just, it's just going to cause a lot of pain. And ah, there's words I can't say on the radio that to, to more accurately express my true feelings. But um, what the Ukrainians on Snake Island said to the Russian warship, that's, that is, that is my uh, opinion on this. And I've learned to say it in Russian, but I'll be nice and not, not say that on your radio show either. But I can now say that wonderful phrase in Russian as well as German. So yeah, that's, that's my thought. Thank you for joining us for twice on Sunday. We'll have a brand new episode 
of Herd Tell starting tomorrow morning on Monday. Remember, Herd Tell, every weekday, brand new episode, Good Talks. That's the interview breakouts every afternoon. And of course, twice on Sunday, on Sunday. That's why we named it that. We also have the Deep Dev Podcast. So make sure you're subscribed and on all the platforms, whether it's YouTube channel or any of the podcasting platforms. That way you don't miss a single thing. It also lets us know that you're out there what you are and are not enjoying us because you're giving us the most precious thing you have your time. We don't want to ever disrespect it. We want to give you good content as we continue to turn down the noise of the news cycle and give you a little bit more perspective on what's going on in the times we live in. Appreciate your time until we see you again. We hope wherever you are across the street or around the world, you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you next time on Her Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.